What do you think of when I say the 1990s? Grunge music? Friends? We all remember that. But what you might not remember is that 61 million people were using pagers and smartphones didn't exist. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on my new podcast, History of the 90s, we go inside the stories that defined a decade. From 90210 to the Long Island Lolita. Listen for free to History of the 90s on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 14th. We begin with a conversation with Federal Minister Jim Carr, MP for Winnipeg South Centre, and the newly appointed Special Representative for the Prairies. We're talking to the Minister about what he sees as the greatest issues on the mind of Western Canadians. Next, we catch up with a political scientist from the U of C on what the next steps our nation should take in dealings with Iran. In terms of the Canadian victims of the Ukraine Airlines tragedy, and diplomacy moving forward. Then we're joined by cognitive psychologist Tracy Alloway. Dr. Alloway shares with us some interesting research on the effects social media can have on our brains. And finally, we hear from parenting expert Ann Douglas on why we should be sharing experiences with our children and not material things. 811, the Calgary Chamber of Commerce today hosting the Honourable Jim Carr for his first trip and discussion since becoming the Prime Minister's Special Representative for the Prairies. To find out what kind of feedback he's been getting from folks in the West and what his plan is, he joins us now, Jim Carr, with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So have you been getting a lot of feedback since you took on this role and, and received the title of being the Special Representative for the Prairies? Yes. <laughs> I bet. A continuing conversation with the people of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. I've lived in the prairie all my life. I care a lot about this region. I know the contribution we have made to the Canadian economy and also to Canada's international brands. Uh, it's true that we in the Prairie West are growing and producing what the world needs. And it's our challenge now to make sure that we take full advantage of that. So I'm looking forward to spending the day chatting with Albertans, uh, not only about the anxiety of today, but also about the promise of tomorrow. It's a place that I always look forward visiting because of the energy, the entrepreneurship, and the way in which Alberta has led the Canadian economy for a very long time. Minister Carr, I wonder if you can pinpoint uh, one main issue that keeps coming up. Is, is there one main sticking point you're hearing from Westerners? I don't think so. Uh, We're going through a very tough time, uh, and the result of this tough time is that families are suffering. Mm -hmm. People have lost their jobs, they're uncertain about their future, and they want to be able to look at their kids and see that there's opportunity in Calgary, throughout Alberta, and the Prairie West. And I believe that there is, and that opportunity lies not only in traditional sectors, but also in value-added agriculture artificial intelligence, in the way in which we have been exporting brain power to the world, and we will continue to do that. So it's my job uh, to pass on to the Prime Minister the messages that we hear from Albertans, and also to work with not only governments, but with the people of Alberta, uh, because we know that a strong Alberta in a united Canada is the best future for all of us. You, um, you're, you're here today, you'll be at the chamber, you're talking to Albertans while you're here on this trip. Do you think, and is there much conversation already with the Prime Minister in terms of equalization, that, you know, continuing to push for the pipelines? That's what we are talking about here in this province. That's what people want answers on. Do you think there's some, some movement possible, especially when it, you look at equalization? 
Well, we're entirely committed to the pipeline, uh, and we have been for quite some time. And I have the honor of sitting in the meeting with the Prime Minister and uh, Premier Kenny just uh, a month or so ago. And we spent an hour talking about the alignment between the interests of Alberta and of Canada. And the subject of equalization and fiscal stabilization came up. We know that Finance Minister Morneau has met with Finance Ministers. Uh, he is prepared to continue to work with them to find improvements to the system. Uh, in a federation as dynamic as ours, we always have to be looking at ways of making it fair, making it uh, more regional equi- equitable. And that's the commitment that both the prime minister and the finance minister have made and that I'll reiterate today. How important is it to you to, uh, you know, uh, see these well, Western Canadians face to face? I know you're in Calgary today for the first time. Is this a, a tour that's going to extend beyond our city? Are you planning on uh, visiting other cities anytime soon? Yes, I do plan on that. And I've been a prairie dweller my entire life. Mm-hmm. And uh, to head west for uh, an hour and a half on an airplane uh, is really just going to the other end of my home. And my home is Prairie, Canada. And that's where my children live. As a matter of fact, one of them in Alberta, she left us for you. She loves it in your province. (laughs) So I've got a little bit of skin in this game, too. So do you have the ear of the Prime Minister then when it comes to just reminding him of the importance of Western Canada and what we mean to the entire economy of this country? Well, I do, but he doesn't need my voice to understand the importance of the prairie economy. Uh, And he reminds us all the time that in a federation such as ours, when there is a member of that federation that is going through tough times. It is the obligation and the responsibility of the rest of us to step up. And there are lots of examples of how Canada is stepping up. It's not always fast enough and far enough for everybody. But I believe that there is a willingness to look at the strengths we have as a nation and to build a stronger federation in the future. And I just know how important Alberta and the Prairie West is, and that will be my message. Thank you for your time this morning, Minister Carr. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I've got my parka with me. <laughs> You're going to need it. Jim Carr. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Jim Carr is MP for Winnipeg South Centre and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's special representative for the Prairies. The uh, uh, talk today, which is going to be curated around Western Canada's importance to the Canadian economy and the path ahead during difficult economic times, Moderated by Sandeep Lali, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, it is today from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., at the uh, Fairmont Palliser Hotel. 709 now. Back on January 8th, Iran launching a missile attack on Iraqi bases, housing U.S. troops in retaliation for the drone strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Hours later, the passenger jet shot down by missiles, killing all aboard, including 57 Canadians. Now the people of Iran are protesting. Iran's president says arrests have been made. But what's next? To find out, we're talking to Robert Hubert. He is the political scientist at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So what what does Canada do now? There's so much to unpack, and it just continues to evolve this situation. Well, I mean, first of all, there's little that Canada can do at this point in time. I mean, we continue, of course, to to voice our outrage at at the uh, needless uh, loss of life that have occurred. 
and we are trying to be involved as much as possible in the investigation, but it's hard to see exactly how far or how much we're actually going to be allowed to do, even if we do get some uh, some people over there. Um, it's very much a waiting game, of course, to see what the Iranian regime does next in terms of these uh, these protests that are developing against it. Well, you know, in the past uh, 24, 48 hours, we're also uh, uh, seeing the protests, the running rampant in the streets, uh, protesters being shot uh, in uh, Iran by police. Can the protests, uh, these sorts of protests, amount to change? Well, they, they, they could. But, I mean, keep in mind, we thought that we were going to see this type of change when uh, the so-called Arab Spring was developing, when it started off in Tunisia. And, in fact, um, when you consider where many of the states ended up, uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, um, it, uh, it, we, we could see change. That did happen in Tunisia. But uh, the reality is it's more likely that the state is going to be able to ultimately suppress this and continue on much the same way that the Assad regime was able to uh, to withstand and a very much more sustained um, uh, opposition against itself. It's pretty tough to battle a regime that doesn't really care or doesn't appear certainly to care about human life. I mean, you you have to give credit to those who are speaking up and and standing up and, and having their voices heard, but ultimately... Does it get them anywhere? Well, and that's the problem. And, and the other problem, too, is what we know is if you are going to see any type of successful regime change, inevitably you have to get some form of support from the international community. And and because of some of the, the policies that the Trump administration has followed, the Western allies are very divided on how to approach Iran. Um, there is there is just out-and-out out resentment between the, the European allies, particularly the British and the French, and the Americans on what to do in Iran. Iran. And so, therefore, what often happens in that situation is nothing um, in terms of support for any type of a peoples that are trying to, uh, to, to rise up against an authoritative regime. You were saying there's not much that Canada can do. Obviously, we're not going to, you know, load up our planes and go over there uh, as far as, as any military action. But Justin Trudeau, the way he's been dealing with this, he's been getting high praise, not only from, uh, you know, uh, liberals, but also his detractors. How does he, and it's, it's in a horrible wave to ride, uh, but how does he continue uh, this wave? Because uh, right now he seems to be making every step correctly as far as uh, the public is concerned. Well, he needs full credit, first of all, for actually acknowledging that the loss of life was Canadians. We don't have a good track record uh, with this type of event. And back in 1985, when a similar occurrence of, um, of a tragic loss of life of over 280 Canadians occurred with Air India, uh, the reaction of, uh, of most Canadians and, and the Prime Minister of the time, Maroney, was to, to send condolences to the Indian government not to recognize the loss of life as mm-hmm. Canadians. So I think that has been a major change, the fact that there is this acceptance that you're a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, regardless of what your your background mm-hmm. is. Uh, the other thing, of course, is he is putting pressure and he is uh, staying out in front in terms of being able to um, uh, to say that Canada wants to be involved with the um, investigation, they want answers. And so from a political rhetorical perspective, that's exactly what he should be doing. Um, I think part of the problem is once we get past the stage, if in fact we see this resistance or we see the resistance being crushed, the question is what, what is the next step? 
and to a large degree the real problem is going to be is that we have limited ability to really do anything on our own it's going to depend on what either the western europeans do or the americans do and and so that is where i think is going to be much more problematic rob the canadians we're hearing are getting access to the crash site today and in the meantime we're hearing that uh, canada's looking into reports iran is harassing families who are trying to repatriate the remains of the crash victims will canada get the victims bodies back well, this is what we're hoping for. There are also unconfirmed reports that the Iranians have also been sanitizing the crash sites. So there's been reports in terms of bulldozers basically going in and removing any meaningful um, uh, information in terms of um, of the crash. Um, there are very real questions. Since this involves some of the most sophisticated anti-air defense systems of the Iranians, exactly what they're going to allow the Canadians to see. Um, I, I personally, I'd be very surprised if it's any Anything more than just sort of a token visit, you're allowed into the uh, into the site, but you're not really able to gather any form of information, take any any forensics to to confirm anything. Because I mean, keep in mind this this is the Iranian authoritative regime, and these are very very sophisticated weapon systems that were obviously very badly misused. But nevertheless, the Iranians do not want information of that nature getting out. What about the uh, Iranian government of? finally admitting and finally coming clean that it was, in fact, a missile, or they say accidentally shot down. Um, as far as getting information, uh, that was, I, I think, a, a, a real win. Uh, but do you think that that hurt them, that they held on so long, or is that the, the Iranian government saying, we don't want any more trouble? it's amazing to, to think that they actually did that. This is not a hallmark of what the, the regime is noted for. I think most observers were caught quite surprised. The speculation, um, and it's only speculation, is that within the, the, the government itself is divided at this point in time. And so the reason they released the information was to, in an attempt to, to further divide the Western allies from the Americans, from the Europeans, because now it makes them look a little bit more reasonable, and they're hoping that perhaps that might, uh, might further some of the European response, which of course is to negotiate with the regime, uh, but once again, no one knows for certain exactly what is happening within the internal decision making of the regime. You know, we don't have much time left, Robert. Just curious, if do you believe that this was truly an accident, or is that just a way for them to save face? Any time that you're involved with a war, um, and and we are in a pseudo war when you are firing missiles at each other, when you're taking out each other. Um, these things occur. I mean, they're an accident in the sense that do I think that they deliberately targeted the Ukrainian aircraft? Probably not. But uh, uh, in terms of it being elevated to a war zone, that's not an accident. The ongoing conflict that exists between the Iranians and the Americans and, and, and the other states of the region are not an accident. That's, that, that's part of a, you know, what many are now calling hybrid warfare, to be honest. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Robert. Always my pleasure. Robert Hubert, political scientist at the University of Calgary. 909 on the morning news, and Dr. Tracy Alloway is a cognitive psychologist, a TEDx speaker, and author of 13 books. She's been to our city before, and she's in town for a couple of speaking engagements we'll tell you about, but very happy to have her here. Good morning, Dr. Alloway. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Going to focus on the topic of one of your, uh, you know, your meetings and your workshops you're going to be uh, handling, social media and your brain, which is something that, well, 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, we would have said social media. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of uh, crept up on us and is a part of our society. Is it a problem for people when it comes to affecting their brain? 
I think that's a really open-ended question, Andrew. And it's like food. You know, some researchers actually call social media junk social media, where you can spend a lot of time on it, just consuming essentially the equivalent of junk food. Alternatively, you can find your time on social media to be highly productive. And that was the topic of a fascinating study over 500 young people. And they looked at exactly that and found that the takeaway was it's not the time that you spend on social media that matters but what exactly you're consuming when you are on social media that can ultimately affect your mental health. And that makes sense. We hear so much about loneliness and depression all sort of linked to social media. So if you're consuming things that are negative and dealing with people who kind of live in that world, then that's what you're going to get. That's true. I mean, you you definitely see that you, you a kind of confirmation bias. You seek out the things that will confirm your own perspective. But interestingly, a different study also found that when you go back to the use of social media, again, more is not better in this case. Specifically, they found that people who are on seven or nine, up to nine different social media platforms have three times more incidences of depressive symptoms compared to just people who are maybe, you know, one or two platforms. Right. You know, and and stacking up to the people that we are friends with or associates with on social media, we've used the term keeping up with the Joneses well before social media came around. Um, There is that, uh, in my opinion, you see a lot of, oh, Sue's on a vacation in Hawaii this week. <laughs> Sue's going to Mexico. Sue got a new car. So Andy's the same got way, FOMO. There's that. I got <laughs> FOMO. So the same way, you know, we might want to validate ourselves. Could it be a case of not feeling like we're stacking up? There's definitely research supporting this idea of us feeling like we we do have FOMO, as you mentioned, Sue. But in my own research, I looked at it from the flip perspective, and that's empathy. And I actually found that people who spend more time on social media, not so much as in hours per day, but who, who are on it for longer, six months, a year, for example, can cultivate a higher sense of empathy because you can put yourself in someone else's position where you may not have had that opportunity when you have a quick kind of face-to-face encounter you might think well you know what's wrong with her why is she so grumpy this morning and you may check on her feed oh this happened that's kind of rough I need to be a little bit more gracious so there are positives to it what else did you find I like that you're looking at it from that flip side I also looked at our cognitive skills. So again, our attention and, you know, a a perpetuated myth over the last couple of years has come out that social media is causing us to have an attention span less than a goldfish. You've probably heard this one. Which is what, three seconds or something? Well, eight seconds and a goldfish is nine, you know, so that. (laughs) um, But actually there are a couple of flaws. First of all, the actual study was conducted by Microsoft, um, but they never mentioned this whole goldfish analogy. But what I find is where the misperception comes in is that the researchers actually gave people a task that was very boring and found that after eight seconds, they kind of shut off, which to me suggests that the brain is being very efficient. If you're asked to look at a very boring piece of information, you may think, well, I don't need to encode this. I don't need to attend to this Mm -hmm. or focus my attention on it. Next task, please. So it makes sense that, I mean, they kind of loaded the question in a way, didn't they? Exactly. Yeah, and in my own research, I found that social media can change the way in which we use our brain, but to what I call a floodlight approach. So I gave what I call heavy users of social media different tasks for attention. How well could they pay attention to different stimuli, a kind of multitasking scenario. And I found that people who are more active users of social media were very good at multitasking. They could switch from one 
incoming stream of information to another compared to those who are more passive consumers of social media. Interesting. And you're going to be sharing a lot of this knowledge at, well, you've got two events coming up. Yes. So tell us about them. Yeah, I'm very excited about this, Sue and Andrew. The first is called Nerd Night and it's on <laughs> Thursday. Yep. And uh, you can check them out on their website and get tickets. We're having it down at Worst. So a fun Thursday evening event. Grab a beer while you're there. On the second event is at the Calgary, uh, Calgary Library downtown, your beautiful building, yes. which I know won some awards as well. Yep. And that's Monday at um, 6.30. And I'll be talking about brain hacks to get a better memory. How about the the age demos, uh, Dr. Alloway, as far as uh, social media? Does it affect you know the teens differently than it does middle-aged people, differently uh, than it does the seniors? Yeah, certainly for teenagers, a lot of growing research is coming out looking specifically at that population. And they do find that they can be more affected from a mental health perspective. Um, but again, they found it's not linked to the time of that they spend on social media, but rather what they're consuming. So it was a longitudinal study following teens over an eight-year period where their time on social media increased from 30 minutes to maybe even two hours on average a day. And they found that while their mental health may struggle a little bit, it wasn't necessarily linked to the time, but rather what they were consuming. Okay, I want to circle back to what you said a second ago. You're, you're talking about hacks to help your brain remember better or yes. to improve your memory. Give us one. Just tease us with what you're going to be sharing with your audience. Um, one is to draw. And I just finished this study with a, a, a group of veterans with PTSD and found that 20 minutes of drawing on a blank piece of paper actually activated your memory because you have to actually use what's called uh, executive function skills. You have to create a plan. What are you going to draw on your paper? You have to then create steps to execute that plan. Am I going to draw a house and so on? And we found in our study that some of the veterans actually found it very difficult to come up with this independently. They they said, what should we draw? Tell us. Mm -hmm. And some of them ended up writing out their weekly schedule because, you know, it was such a cognitively demanding task. But just 20 minutes of that improved working memory significantly. Well, you know, you're an expert in your field, so you can spot it. How can I tell, or how could Sue or but one of the listeners tell, that social media is affecting them in a negative way? Is Are there signs that we can recognize in ourselves? I think if you begin to notice that maybe you are starting to feel isolated, even though you're spending time on social media, that could be a good clue. You know, if you think, you know, I just got sucked into this black hole of social media for the last hour, but I don't feel better or richer, you know, as, a, as an individual. I didn't learn something. I, I wasn't encouraged. I wasn't motivated. I think that's a good sign that either, you know, look at carefully what you're choosing to consume in social media and maybe even reduce the amount of time of your consumption. Is all the information about these two events you're speaking out here in Calgary. Is it on your website? It is. Excellent. So tracyalloway.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Love to have you in always. Thank you. And now we know we can work on our brains. Need all the help I can get. Yeah. Recent studies show giving your kids too many things to play with can actually result in the opposite of the desired effect. They may actually be less happy. So to follow up on that study, we wanted to talk to an expert. And if you're a parent, you likely have a book by parenting expert Anne Douglas in your home right now. She joins us now. Good morning, Anne. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Love that you're on here and can speak to this. What's your thought on that? What's your experience in terms of all the research you've done? Well, it makes so much sense on so many levels. I mean, I think even as adults, we can think about, like, what happens when you sit down at a desk that is, like, overflowing with random materials? You can't even settle into, well, at least I can't even settle into getting any work done. It's the same for kids. So if they're, they're building blocks and, you know, random Barbies and Lego were all mixed in together, it's like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't even know how to begin to have fun with this stuff. 
and give us an example of, of some of the experience of the experiences that would be good for a child. Well, I think that if you can help them to sort their materials, like if you do find yourself post-Christmas with sort of a disaster in the family room or whatever, you know, um, help them to sort of like put things in different bundles so that that way if they want to do art and crafts, they have all that stuff in one place. And if they want to do building blocks, it's in another place. And also, like plan ahead for next year because a lot of the time, Parents and kids feel overwhelmed by the number of gifts that showed up and maybe say to, you know, grandparents and extended family members that, you know what, our kids actually don't need any more stuff. So maybe if you want to give them something next year and we're not saying you have to, why not make it an experience? Like we could all go to the zoo as a family one day or something like that. I love it because there's another study that says experiences instead of the toys can boost a kid's intelligence and happiness. So I think the happiness goes without saying, but how do you think that that can help their intelligence as well? Well, because you're not having so much stuff in their environment, and so you're challenging them to come up with their own creative play. I mean, it's like the classic thing, eh? You get a new dishwasher, the kids want the box. And so <laughs> sometimes I think we think we overthink it, and we think we have to supply too much stuff. I mean, I was a mom of four young children at one point, and looking back, yeah, we had too much stuff. And uh, another option is to maybe join a toy library. I, I checked earlier, and apparently there is a toy library in the in the Calgary area and that's another great way because sure you you love having those cute toddler toys but you don't need them forever so Mm -hmm. maybe swap them in and out of your house okay you're inundated with stuff there's mountains in the basement and in their rooms Uh, how do we uh, without uh, causing a massive blow up in the house uh, (laughs) get the kids to help us weed through and decide what we can give to charity is there a strategy to uh, you know downsizing and including your kids in the toy downsizing really tap into their empathy and say, you know, there are other kids who don't have as much stuff as us, and maybe there are some things here you don't play with anymore that you'd really like another family to have. And, you know, why not help encourage that sort of, you know, that whole value set at the same time that you're decluttering? It's so true. And, you know, the more, the more, the more, uh, we know kids like order and rules, right? I mean, we know that. It's been proven. Yeah, we, so we, all humans do. Yeah. So, so to, to have so much disorder, you're right. Sometimes it just can be overwhelming, especially for, not just for the parents who it's driving them crazy, but for those kids. Absolutely. And I mean, think about how calm you feel, like, you know, when we all do that desk resolution thing and we all clean off our desk for once and you sit down, it's like, I have a pad of paper, I have a pen, I can, you know, do all my work, I feel all in control versus, oh, wow, a hurricane hit my desk. Let's talk, let's talk about the fact that the intelligence aspect of it, because I think that uh, Sue and I were talking about this with one of our last uh, guests uh, talking about a photography exhibit. What a great opportunity if they are doing an experience to maybe tap them onto a new passion or uh, set them down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of what childhood is, is trying on different activities and seeing where your interests lie. So if you're not so fixated on stuff, you could actually go to, you know, different events around the community, including, like you say, art exhibits, photography things, maybe there's a science thing. You know, just let them find out where their interests and passions lie. And then, you know what? You can always go to the library, which is another magical institution, and uh, temporarily load up on books that can be shared with other families. You know, that whole experience thing, it's just, it it helps them just kind of live life, right? Instead of being stuck to a screen or whatever it might be by themselves and not, you know, getting a taste of the world and the people around them. Yeah, 
and getting that sense of community connections because while they're out there, you know, they, they notice there are other families and, you know, maybe you can make some new friends and you can do some fun stuff together because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's relationships and experiences, not stuff that contribute to our happiness, health, and well-being. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Anne. Great speaking to the two of you. Have a great day. Thank you. Anne Douglas, parenting expert and author, and you can find more about Anne online at annedouglas.net.